the children? These are the children of prisoners. Where are they? Let's find out how and what happens to children of prisoners. I can give you some statistics. Two million prisoners in prison today in the United States. 2.7 million children are the children of these prisoners. By the way, in Miami, date alone, there are 15,000 children who are children of prisoners, and they're 70% more likely to go to prison. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Where Are the Children? I am Tinkerbell. Paulette Pfeiffer, and I am a second-generation survivor of the Holocaust who has decided to make our life's work the children of prisoners. That's wonderful, and I am Wesley Saunders, former NFL veteran of the Pittsburgh Steelers and Indianapolis Colts, here to serve these children in whatever capacity that I can. Hi, my name is Media, and I'm a transformational coach, healing arts coach, and an artist, and I'm so excited to be here today. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome again to Where Are the Children, a program about children of prisoners and any other story that you have about children. But we are the specialists on children of prisoners for the last 27 years. But we are very honored and proud today to introduce our official first speaker, Dave Lawrence Jr., retired publisher of the Miami Herald, founder of the Children's Movement of Florida, and founding chair of the Children's Trust who now serves about 400 agencies in Miami-Dade at the tune of $175 million. So welcome, please, with a big open heart. Dave Lawrence. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, Mr. Lawrence, we appreciate you joining us here on the Where Are the Children podcast for our first official guest. Now, we, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about how awesome this man is here in the Miami-Dade area especially. But for those of them who don't know who you are, please fill our guests in on who are you and tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm about 81 years old. I'm one of nine children. Grew up in a farm driving a tractor by the time I was 10 years old, read the encyclopedia page by page when I was 11. The farm sort of went broke. We moved to Florida because it was a land of opportunity. I was 14. All of us went to a state university in Florida, and I went into the newspaper business and worked at seven newspapers for a total of 35 years was managing editor of a newspaper when I was 27 years old. I've been married for 59 years, loved my wife more than when we were married. We met at the University of Florida. We have five children who are 58 to 38 and seven grandchildren. And if my wife is okay and the children are okay and the grandchildren are okay and everyone in the family, I can put up with the rest of the pain in this world. So just to add a bit, a governor of Florida named Lawton Childs asked me to lead a task force in 1996. I was still the publisher of the Miami Herald. Task force was on high-quality early care development and education, school readiness, and I decided ultimately in this civic assignment, I was still publisher of the Herald and El Nuevo Herald, that I would devote the rest of my working life to helping children get off to a good start in life and in school. And out of that came the passage of pre-kindergarten, availability for free for all four-year-olds in Florida. And out of that came the aforementioned Children's Trust. And finally, I believe deeply 
that the same principles that raise my children and grandchildren, the right blend of health, education, nurturing, and love, that's the same principle that raises everyone's child. So with building a movement, I'll frequently ask audiences, what was the civil rights movement about? And invariably, people will say minorities, black people, African Americans. And I will say swiftly, you got it wrong. It was about an American sense of equity for all Americans. You can't build a movement based on those people, whomever they might be. You need to build a movement based on us, ours. That's my story. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I can tell right now, I can I can listen to you go on for a long time about your story. So we're going to have to really be adamant about what we ask and how we ask it, because your storytelling is second to none. So powerful. So you just mentioned that at one point you decided to start working with children solely. Was there a significant event in your life that led you to that? How did you find this purpose, this calling in life? Well, I didn't know anything about it, although I think my children were raised according to what I now understand to be the principles of early childhood. I didn't understand a lot of facts. I didn't know that 30% of children start school behind, and then most of them get further behind. I didn't know that 40% of fourth graders in the state of Florida cannot read at minimally proficient levels. I didn't know the research that says that if you have 100 children at the end of first grade who are lousy readers, at the end of fourth grade, 88 of the 100 are still lousy readers. It's hard to catch kids up if they miss the basics, and all children need the basics, and the basics need to include nurturing and love. Children who grow up without love end up being very incomplete people and frequently doing damage to themselves and to other people. So learning a bunch of things, I decided the future of this republic depends on getting going with this sort of thing. And we live in a very big community, 2.8 million people, larger than 16 states in the union. People like me, non-Hispanic white, are 15% of the population, but only 12% of the 35,000 babies born in this community each year. So this isn't about being Hispanic or non-Hispanic or black or African-American. And of course, black and African-American are not interchangeable either. When I was in Detroit as executive editor and publisher, we use those words interchangeably. But the reality is there are an extraordinary number of black people in Miami-Dade who are not African-American, come from places of different cultures, may look at racism in some different ways, etc. But here's a country with a lot of greatness and a lot of history failures. We're not really well poised to succeed in some ways when you have three out of every four young people from 17 to 24 are not eligible to go into the military. you got a heck of a problem. What's that all about? Well, academic challenges, physical challenges, substance abuse, criminal justice problems. Three out of four? This isn't like when I was at the University of Florida in ROTC and you took had to figure out how to clean an M1 rifle. This is a very sophisticated military, and only certain numbers of people are going to be accepted. But we need a country where people have hope. There are an enormous number of people who live in our own community. Here's a community of stunning wealth, of really big homes, and of cars that are beyond my caring about, to be honest. But it's Sexy things and possessions are too important for a lot of people, and that's particularly true in my view in this community, more so than any other place I've lived. And we need to make sure that everybody has a chance to succeed, which is not the same as being able to buy a Lamborghini. So 
hearing all these things that you were involved with, and here it is years later, you'll tell us how many years later since you started the children's movement, because this podcast is all about where are the children today? Where do you think the children that you might have had something to do with are today? Are they better off than they were when you started? Well, you can see the measurements because the Children's Trust, for instance, tracks all of this. And when you get money from the Children's Trust, you have to have measurable outcomes. You have to prove that this stuff works. It's not simply being nice and thoughtful and or even loving. It's about what difference did it make? What difference does it make in children being able to read at age three or four or going to college or lots of other things. A child who succeeds almost certainly is not going to be in prison. Just imagine the American tragedy of if I'm nervous and insecure from time to time, and I promise you that I am, that's healthy as long as you blend the insecurities as fuel with having the chutzpah to go ahead and do something. But if I am five years old and I'm in kindergarten and I see all these other people succeeding and I don't really know what they're talking about, what do I do? I act up and out. And then the teacher special tracks me and we're off to the races. And George W. Bush once talked about the soft bigotry of low expectations. A lot of people have low expectations of of other human beings and of children. Everybody deserves the chance to fulfill potential. But what we know is that 85% of brain growth occurs by the age of three, and the first 18 months are critical for language development. And if you miss the first three years, this is sad, but a high-quality teacher can tell you children at age four who almost certainly are not going to succeed. That's an American tragedy and unacceptable. So, Wow. I just want to interject and say, I don't know how, just listening to you speak, how we haven't had a president of the United States with a background in journalism or something like that, because hearing you speak makes me realize, and maybe I'm a little biased coming from a a journalism household with my father, but there's a level where you keep speaking of just the right blend of things, right? The right blend of nurturing and love, but also grammar and literature and manners and all of those things matter in the makeup of a child. And one of the things that I emphasize is I often ask an audience, how do you get ahead? How do you succeed? And they'll tell me, you know, hard work, vision, etc. I want them to tell me that it's about building relationships. I haven't wanted any of my five children to be too good looking, too smart, too charismatic, too popular, because I've seen it all my life. People then rely on that great gift and they don't do enough, don't achieve enough because they're so relying on the fact that they're popular already. They haven't thought this out, but that's what it amounts to. And I have mentored somebody whose father just got out of prison. And I've said, you know, I went to a couple of White House state dinners, which are the best dressed you're ever going to be in this world. And you're seated at round tables and you might be seated between a famous United States senator, a famous author, what the hell are you going to talk about? Uh, Because they've never heard of LeBron James. I read two books a week, mostly history and biographies. I have a lot more things to talk about with people. I've been to 56 countries. Every time I go to another country, I read several books. I want to know about the literature of the country and the geopolitics of the country and the geography of the country. And I haven't just been to pleasant places. I interviewed child rape victims in the Eastern Congo and uh, 
I've sat in clearing in Bangladesh talking about micro-lending with very poor people, etc. All of us need to be lifelong learners. This isn't simply about going to school or higher education. It's how do you learn all your life? Where have you been? With whom have you been? And so forth. It's interesting that you speak about this child that you've been mentoring for many years whose father just came out of prison. Do you see any changes that your interaction with him has made in his life? Yes, but I think it's still early to know. I'm hopeful. But when you're in a very large family and your mother's working her tail off and daddy is away for all your teenage years, there are real consequences for this. You hope that you have teachers who inspire you. I'll frequently ask an audience, who's your favorite teacher? And people can remember a major league teacher when you were in the fourth grade. I can still remember my kindergarten. We didn't have kindergarten. My first grade teacher, Mrs. Soule. And Mrs. Soule was my teacher 65 years ago. No, 75 years ago. Oh, goodness. 75 years ago. I still remember what Mrs. Soule looked like. I remember what she stood for, etc. And I can remember somebody from the Harvard Business School. So a good teacher is a stunning gift. And frankly, teachers too often have low expectations of other people. I think a big part of success is people believing in you. And the teachers who believed in me and in you were very special. Wow. Thank you for emphasizing that. I think that is one of the things that is so special what Tinkerbell and the rest of us are doing here at SVC because I remember when I first joined the organization as a volunteer, I think one of the biggest aha moments was that, oh my God, we are literally creating a space full of adults and mentors who believe in these children. And that might not exist in their household currently because the parent is incarcerated and maybe just not in those surroundings. And that's for me, it was so unique. Like five years ago when we started as volunteers, I was like, wow, we're literally helping these children believe in themselves more. Like, this is incredible. And I didn't know how much it was going to impact the kids just by us being there and believing in them and giving them so much love. So everything you're sharing, like, it literally hits my heart because yeah. I've experienced that with SVC. Well, I grew up in a home of 11 people, nine children, two adults on a farm. When we sat down for dinner, my father would quiz us on government and politics. We didn't have a lot of money, but we sure talked about what was important, what values were, expectations. I always had great expectations for my children, as my parents had great expectations for me. When you have five children, they're very different. Any two of them frequently are very different. But the basic values that you want are all the same. There's a lady in our program. I'll just call her Mrs. Jackson. And she has many children. And the children, some or other, seem to run wild, do their own thing. But she brought them in and attends herself. And I just asked her last week at the last event. And I said, how come you come to all the events? She goes, I don't want to miss out. This is what I missed out when I was a child. And we went over and she said, all of you should be so proud that you had us around because one of my children is going to go to college. We never thought. Yeah, that's that. I and we know who it is. We? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we never thought that was possible because the mom didn't believe it and the dad is not there. So, Dave, what you are doing for children, not only in Miami Dade, but around the nation, people know your name. They know what you've done. They know what you're still doing to this day. There's not a person that I mention your name to that doesn't say, oh my God, he's the one to talk about where are the children today. One of the 
quotations I so remember and so often quote is Horace Mann, who was more or less the inventor of the American public education system a century and a half ago, who said in 1859, the Civil War is right around the corner, he spoke to the graduating class at Antioch College in Ohio and said, be ashamed to die before you have won some battle for humanity. Uh, that you don't need to be famous or even well-known, but everybody has within himself or herself the ability to make a big difference. And much of the difference you make, you'll never know that you made that difference. So from time to time, I hear from people, and I'm stunned what they remember uh, that was significant to them, and I couldn't even remember any of this. So... Dave, I hope you I hope you remember that when you met Zay, one of our children, that the first thing he asked you when you said after lunch, let's go to the library, I want to give you a book. And you said, I'm going to give you a dedicated life as your first book. He said, I already read that one. Tinkerbell had me read it. And you said, I want you to have your own. And when you bought him his own, he said, Tinkerbell, will you take a picture of me with Mr. Lawrence? Because he, made, he wrote this book. But isn't that so important for children to have their own books? Yes. And so yes. many children grow up without books. Yes. And so many people use television as a babysitter. The terrible damage of television is that it has no interactivity with other human beings. People need to be hugged, sit on people's lap and sung with. You need to go into the grocery store and... Let's get one, two, three, four of this, and this is a butterfly, and uh, these are shapes and sizes and colors, etc. All of these things can be done if you know how to do them. But we live in a country where, and well, we live in a state of 220,000 children born a year, and an enormous number are don't get the fundamentals, and then it's too late to get the fundamentals. But it just seems, Dave, that every time that someone meets you, you leave such a strong feeling behind. I'm watching media in West, and I'm a great admirer of theirs as well, by the way, and because uh, he's the one, Wes is the one, that managed to get three boys who didn't want to go into the opera when we took all these kids to the Florida Grand Opera, and he just picked them all up at one time and said, you're going to the opera. And when they sat down, those children fell asleep in their arms. So that, that's, that's, that's how we change the world, one at a time. Right, Dave? I'm with you. And I'm, I'm, you. I'm listening to him, and I just, uh, I know my dad's going to hear this, and I just want to say, Pop, you were right, you know, listening to this guy. And I remember just growing up, and my dad would unplug my TV in my room, and he would drag me to the library on Saturdays, and we would spend the whole day at the library, and I would have to leave with at least five books and he would make me do my own book reports at home. And it felt like torture at the time until I got older and started con convincing myself that reading was fun, right? You know, if you go long enough without a TV, the book becomes the TV, right? You use your own imagination. You're, you're able to So I grew up with radio, same thing. You yeah. had to imagine what people look like. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good way to grow up. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It is such an honor, such pleasure for the three of us and for the rest of the world that listens to you. Okay. to know that we know you and have you in our lives. It's, and you know what? I, I know that he's such a humble guy, you know, for people to speak on him like that. You get a little bashful, but it, it's true, man. We certainly appreciate it. And, you know, we're giving you your flowers now because uh, as, as we, you know, there's a saying we say in, in my culture, hey, certain people are down with the brown. 
right? And so Tinkerbell and Mr. Lawrence, y'all are down with the brown. It's not just a look. It's not just something you're doing as a facade or for, for show. You actually truly care about people who might be misrepresented or people who might be underprivileged. Like, I'll it's work actually... hard to live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. With that, media, close it down. Dear listeners, we are so grateful to have you here today. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast, Where Are the Children? If anything we say here resonates with you, please visit our website, silentvictimsofcrime.org. Give us a phone call, 305-482-3339, or email us, svc at silentvictimsofcrime.org. We would love to hear from you. We're all about the children and where they are today. Thank you, Dave Lawrence. Thank you. Thank you, you, everyone. Thank you again. Right on. Catch y'all next time. (laughs) 